0: Welcome back to the Wealth Actually Podcast, the show that features artists, entrepreneurs, experts, and commentators that will give you the right knowledge, planning, and guidance so you can preserve your assets and enjoy your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at WealthActually.com. This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes. It is neither investment, legal, nor tax advice and does not represent the opinions of the employers of the host or guest. And now, here's your host, Fraser Rice.
1: Welcome back to the Wealth Actually Podcast. I'm Fraser Rice. I am at the Ackerlin Conference down in Orlando. I'm also playing hurt today with a little bit of a chest cold. So it's an away game and some nasal passage blockage. So I would bet the under. But we're going to talk a little bit today about what you should know in case you're named in an estate planning document. In the world of estate planning, many people who are written into important roles don't know their mentioned documents or what's expected of them. These roles can be a lot of work, thankless, and carry significant liability. What happens if you're part of somebody's estate plan? Jenny Roselle helps us get a handle on these roles and responsibilities that are out there. She's the founder and owner of the Indiana Estate and Elder Law Group. We talk about the role of executor, trustee, and beneficiary, and the pluses and minuses of each. Welcome aboard, Jenny.
2: Hi there.
1: Well, we are Twitter buddies. It's amazing what social media can do in terms of putting, hopefully, smart people, that's you, with people like me who always need help. Oh, stop! <laughs> I'm glad we connected. And we're going to talk about something that actually just popped up in my life. Yesterday, I discovered that I was named in a few documents. Someone had passed away. And I got a phone call saying, Oh, hey, you know, this is going on. And you're not named executor, but you are a successor trustee of a trust. And we have some beneficiaries that may have some questions. And I thought it would be a good idea. And we'd been talking about doing this before my little news about talking about what happens when you find out that you're named in an estate planning document. So, before we get into that, though, Jenny, tell us a little bit about your background, your geography, and how you got into estate planning and what you do there.
2: My name is Jenny Roselle. I'm the owner and attorney at Indiana Estate and Elder Law. As the title sounds like, I am located in the state of Indiana have a few different offices kind of throughout the state, and estate and elder law is what I do day in and day out. I don't dabble in anything else. I've been doing it for about 12 years now, and I love it. It doesn't feel like lawyering to me most of the time because I get to meet with clients, get to understand what they are coming to the table with, and help them. So I kind of fell into this practice area 12 or so years ago, but... I've not ever looked back because it fits my personality so well.
1: We both probably understand that there's a lot of vernacular and minutiae and detail around estate planning generally, wills, trusts, etc. There's names and titles to things that are significant roles and the responsibilities of those roles are a big deal. Before we get into some of the detail around that, what do you tell your clients about putting people in the different roles in an estate plan?
2: Oh, my goodness. Before we hopped on, we were going to try to keep this at 30 minutes, and then you start with that question. (laughs) The couple things that really pop into my brain first is that, my goodness, it doesn't have to be your oldest child. I hear that all the time from clients that, well, Johnny's the oldest, so we're going to put him in all these roles. That's not the only characteristic that you should be looking at when you start placing people in these roles. And the second thing, building upon that, it doesn't have to be children at all. And in fact, if we do put our children in some of these roles, sometimes it's not really setting us up for success. So I tell clients all the time, toss those kind of things that you intuitively think, toss them right out the window. Because really, when you sit down and consider who we put in some of these roles, There's a laundry list of different characteristics and qualities that this person should possess to really succeed in this role.
1: I'm going to try to constrain us, because we could definitely talk for multiple hours on this topic, to three big roles, the executor, the trustee, and the beneficiary. So take us through what you think about in terms of the executor role. What does an executor do, basically?
2: That is code for someone has a last will and testament. And ultimately, if they do not have a last will and testament, and we're going through some sort of probate court process, the probate court will also establish who the executor is. But the executor is the person that's really tasked with administering your estate after you pass away. So if the executor is in action, that tells me someone's passed away. That executor has absolutely no active role if we're still alive and doing well. So when we pass away, someone has to take the lead, take the baton in administering the estate. And when I say administering the estate, I'm talking about ultimately gathering what bills are out there, debts are out there, what assets are out there, getting those assets marshaled into the estate, and ultimately following the executor's responsibilities, following if they do have a will, following those terms of the will, and if they don't have a will, following the terms of what states call the intestacy rules for people that pass away without a last will and testament.
1: So it sounds like it's a really good idea to man that post with someone who's really detail-oriented. Are there any other sort of attributes you look at for people who get the joy of occupying that role?
2: Definitely detail-oriented. It does help if they have some sense of natural ability with financial management or just legal terms of art. That's not a non-negotiable, but it does help. Maybe another quality I can throw out there is someone that is proactive, someone that is not going to let moss and mold grow on things. But I know something, Fraser, you wanted to talk about too was how long sometimes these estates take to get things administered. And I often tell people that Oftentimes, they will go as fast or as slow as the executor is working. So you can imagine someone that's in this role that may tend to be more reactive or maybe just not very responsible from a time management standpoint. Things could go on, at least in Indiana, for years and years and years, not because people are fighting, but because your executor is dragging your feet.
1: Lots of detail. A real indication that you have to be have some initiative around different things. The risks to someone who occupies that role. Can beneficiaries sue you? What do you see for people who take this on but don't really do a good job?
2: There's definitely risks associated with taking on a role like this and embracing a role. You're held to a very specific and detailed ethical and fiduciary duty to do things through the estate in a way that is not only on the up and up, but like to keep things moving forward, not dragging your feet, that sort of thing. We can all imagine there's beneficiaries out there that are just waiting for you to trip and fall on your face and do something wrong. And that something wrong could be not being very communicative or not keeping things moving forward. And fortunately or unfortunately, I'm not sure which word to use there, beneficiaries have recourse. If you are not doing things as the executor in an appropriate fashion, they can sue you. We could probably share stories left and right that there are plenty of stories where beneficiaries have sued executors for legitimate reasons. And there are plenty of stories that beneficiaries have sued the executor for maybe silly reasons too.
1: There is help out there for people who are in that role and who are trusted with it. And want to have some control over things you don't have to be the lawyer the accountant the valuation expert the investment management expert all rolled into one in my experience it's usually good to hire out on these types of things to make sure you're doing things correctly an example that i've seen usually involves people who have one big stock position and we can get into the details of this maybe in a different podcast but there's a concept of step up in basis where you can do smart things diversification-wise around that without creating real tax hits. But to not do that, you really start taking on a little bit of risk. So if Google all of a sudden goes down 20%, the beneficiaries could take a look at you and say, hey, you should have done something. And that's why I think it's important to have a good ecosystem, a good trust and states lawyer, have an accountant in the background, the investment manager, et cetera, to help you along the way. Now, against that backdrop... Executors can get paid, correct? I mean, you shouldn't have to be doing this out of your own pocket.
2: (laughs) Absolutely. And I really encourage when I represent executors, and I know we're going to get into trustees in a second, I really encourage them to take some sort of fee. And there's different schools of thought on what an appropriate fee is. However, I have a lot of clients that choose not to take a fee for several different reasons. They don't want to take it from the beneficiaries, you know, pod or whatever. At the end of the day, it's the executor that's putting the time, energy into fulfilling this role. So I'm an advocate for that person taking an appropriate and reasonable compensation. So yes, they're absolutely entitled to a fee.
1: At least in New York, it can be laid out in statute. So a good trust and state's attorney can help provide some guidance no matter what the state, as far as a good fee on that front. Let's dive into the trustee role, which I've been around that in lots of different forms from trustees that are set up during lifetime, from trusts that were set up at death. I think the first thing we should talk about is the roles that a trustee performs. And many times the estate plan, let's call it graduates from just having a will to having a revocable trust. And then someone is suddenly in the role of trustee upon somebody's passing. When they find that out, what are they expected to worry about in terms of those assets?
2: Maybe the for starters, I think the biggest difference that we have to kind of separate out is a trustee is going to be responsible for anything held inside the name of the trust. So that asset, for example, will say the Roselle family trust on it, or maybe there are assets that fall into that trust later, you know, in terms of after death or something like that. But if the asset is not held in the name of the trust, the trustee, they have no authority over that. So you can imagine a retirement account that may have humans listed as beneficiaries. Those kind of assets are gonna flow outside of the trust and the trustee is not gonna have any responsibility or authority over those types of assets. The first thing I wanna lay out is trustee is only gonna be responsible for any assets that are held in the name of the trust. And then really from there, unless you can think of something that maybe I'm forgetting or to add, from there, it's kind of a lot of the same stuff going on with trustee as there was executor, that you're held to a very high fiduciary ethical duty to be managing those assets. You have to, again, also be very detail-oriented, be very communicative. All those same kind of attributes and things that are going on also come over when we're wearing the trustee hat too. The biggest difference is you just have to understand that you may be wearing a different hat. You may have a hat that says executor on it. And that executor, you know, if you throw that on top of your head, may be dealing with assets that are held outside of the trust that someone's passing. While if you toss that trustee hat on, those are assets that are going to be held inside the trust. But really from a 50,000 foot overview, A lot of the responsibilities and attributes that these people should have are pretty similar. And I don't know if you have anything else to add on that front.
1: My addition would be that trusts go on for longer usually than estates do. Estates, they can take a long time, but they eventually get closed. Trusts can go on for a long time. And I guess I would add on to that, all of those fiduciary principles you laid out make a lot of sense. The different classes of beneficiary are... Sort of a set of weights that you have to keep in mind when making decisions. And so, my addition onto that would also be the people who are good at this are good at listening, good at taking really good notes that they understand the situation. And then, when they're trying to do things fair and equitably, as opposed to equally, they show their work as far as how they came to that decision when they did it. You have to kind of do the same things with executorships, but at the same time, those end. The decisions you make now in a trust can have repercussions with the trustee decades down the line. And if you don't show how and why, sometimes that can really be a bad spot for a trustee to be if the beneficiaries think you did something wrong.
2: And there's a lot of times when you're serving as trustee, I'm glad you added that onto this conversation because you're right that sometimes that trusteeship does last for much longer. And we're talking about sometimes for decades. And so there's sometimes, depending on how the trust document is written, Sometimes trustees are left with a lot of discretion and they have to make those kind of judgment calls. It's more than just, to your point, more than just judgment calls. There needs to be some sort of documented thought process behind arriving to this conclusion in terms of maybe a discretionary distribution to a beneficiary versus, say, like a distribution that's just mandatory. Maybe it's like at this age, X amount comes out. At this other age, why amount comes out at that point, the trustee is just following the trust document and just divvying it out accordingly.
1: I'd add on to it too, just from a pure tax perspective. It takes a not a different kind of accountant, but one with experience in trusts, because that is a different animal with different rules than most people are used to or accustomed to in sort of an income tax or capital gains tax planning perspective. So, if you get that role, I would not assume that those normal roles apply. You're going to start hearing acronyms like fiduciary accounting income and DNI and things like that, where the rules are definitely a lot different. The taxation of trusts is different. And to sort of wander into that world without really understanding what happens, I think that could be an expensive mistake. Absolutely. Let's move into the sort of our final big class of people here the beneficiaries. You know, if you find out you're the beneficiary of the trust, or if you are named in a will and you're going to be getting some assets that, in theory, should be good news once you get past the emotion of somebody passing, et cetera. When you're talking to people who come to you with this question, what do you tell them to ask for, or what should they know about when hearing about something like this?
2: I find that every state may operate a little differently, and even every attorney seems to operate a little differently on this question. I am personally a big advocate for transparency and communication. And so, One of the first steps in our process, if we are helping an executor or a trustee and helping get things administered, one of the very first steps in our process is sending out a letter to all the beneficiaries just to introduce who we are, introduce what our role is in the process. Actually, most of the time, those letters are kind of good enough where the beneficiary at that point, we don't really hear from. They just are like, okay, the executor or trustee and that attorney over there. They've got things under control. But sometimes there are beneficiaries that rightfully so want more information. And in those situations, if we do hear a beneficiary say, hey, I want to see what I'm entitled to, what my interest in this estate or trust is, I always go to the client. The client at that point is the executor or trustee. When I'm talking about the client, I'm talking about my client is the executor or trustee. And at that point, I just have a conversation with them. And I ask them first, are you comfortable with sharing this information with the beneficiary? And I think this may be where states sometimes differ because how Indiana, my state works is ethically, we only have to show them the parts of the document that directly apply to them. So we don't have to share like the whole thing. But I find that in my experience, the more that you keep close-chested, the more that they have to connect the dots, the higher their walls are going to go up. That's what I mean by, I'm a fan of transparency and communication, and beneficiaries are entitled to information and documentation, whether the executor trustee really likes it or not, they're still entitled to some information. What that information is, is going to depend.
1: What recourse is there if you're the beneficiary and you're worried that the trust? or the estate, but maybe we'll focus on trusts, just because that tends to be more ongoing, but that it's not being managed well, that maybe they went from a diversified portfolio and said, oh, well, I'm going to put it in half apple, half gold. And that makes sense. Or that they're over distributing or distributing outside their power to one person or another, or maybe that they're conflicted. What happens in your world when someone comes to you saying that they have suspicions?
2: I think a vast majority of those types of individuals are probably not comfortable enough to call up the attorney and push the issue, the attorney that's already involved. And so I think most of the time, the beneficiaries at that point seek other legal counsel to represent them as a beneficiary. And that could be amicable too. I think sometimes people in my seat the ones that are representing the executors and trustee, you know, if there's an attorney that pops up on the other side from a beneficiary, I think sometimes we forget that, hey, this can be amicable too. They're just advocating for their client's interest. But if there is a beneficiary out there that has a concern, whether it's legitimate or not, if they have a concern, they can seek legal counsel, hire someone to advocate for their interest. And just to make sure things are seen on the up and up. So if they want to request some sort of accounting from us, if they want to request additional information from us, that can very easily be done through seeking their own attorney.
1: I also like to say that for some people, it's okay if in doing your own planning, you want to understand what's going on outside what you control that could have an impact on it. And that's a very legitimate way to ask that question, in my opinion.
2: I think sometimes especially attorneys. It's like when other attorneys get involved, our walls go up and really I would welcome the opportunity. And in fact, when additional attorneys are involved, I actually find that things tend to stay more amicable because at that point, attorneys are keeping the emotions out of it. It's more of just getting to the facts. So I actually welcome it in those kind of situations.
1: And I think way down deep, they know that they don't want to be charging or working on something that's going around in circles. or are going to be a total dead end and potentially not be able to charge for it. Efficiency is actually a pretty good thing to achieve where possible on that front. I wrote down a couple of other terms that people may see in a document that I thought it may make sense to go over, one of which is really just the successor role. Some people start seeing these terms and positions start piling up. What does a successor do? In my opinion, it's really sort of a backup plan saying that if the person that's named can't do it for some reason, you have a successor in place and then another successor and another successor, et cetera. If something goes wrong in practice, in that executor role or in that trustee role, do you see that incorporated a lot?
2: Absolutely. I encourage it because as we all know, life sometimes takes a course that we don't think is going to happen. The more people we can put on a succession list, the better. Simultaneously, I do tell clients, don't start listing Joe Bob, your neighbor, just to throw someone on the list. Let's spend some time and really lay out a list of people that we know and trust to fulfill those roles. But the more successors you put, if something happens, we already have successors named. And so whether... The primary executor, trustee, whoever, you know, it goes across the board. It may not even be that something happens to them. Maybe they don't want to do it. People can resign too. This isn't a super fun thing that people enjoy doing. So, plenty of people resign all the time as well. So, I encourage individuals to put a succession in all of these roles, but with the caveat of make sure being smart about who are putting in those successor roles as well.
1: Well, as we get into Trust in the States 201 or 301, we start getting into roles that start looking like superheroes and things like that. Something that I think is really more commonplace now is the idea of a trust protector. And that's a little bit different from a trustee. Where do you see it come up in your practice?
2: I probably mostly see it when we want or need to make like a sweeping change of a whole bunch of clients' documents. So say there's some law that passes. We, a lot of the times put my law firm as the trust protector. And in doing so, we do it from a place of if there's a law that comes down that impacts our clients' plans negatively, the trust protector would be allowed to kind of do this one sweeping change. Of course, with the client's permission, we would get the client involved in that. But otherwise, that's where I see it mostly is if we need a trust protector to step in and make some sort of like administrative change, I should say, not change in beneficiaries or anything like that, but doing some sort of administrative change in the provisions of the trust to get it into the good side of the law change. Another place I've seen it be used pretty frequently is when we've run out of trustees. So kind of going back to what we were just talking about, you know, if we flat ran out of trustees, we can have the trust protector be someone that we trust to name who's up next. That's a very serious role that you know, I wouldn't just trust anyone to name who's up next. that's where I see it often as well.
1: I was just going to add on to that, that exact point that the trust protector is there to act as a check and balance in case there's something wrong or strange that's happened at the trustee level. There is a check and balance there that can easily switch things without necessarily having to go to court and ask for court approval to do that type of thing and create a delayed expensive Thing that could have had an easy, quick fix in terms of staffing that important role.
2: Yeah. And I think once clients hear that, because initially the clients are like, what is this role? What are we talking about? And once you phrase it like that, they're like, oh, okay. Yeah, we got that. Makes total sense.
1: <laughs> Terrific. Jenny, nice quick survey that we just did. I think a lot of people who are listening to this are going to get something out of it. How do people find you and your practice, whether they're Indiana or otherwise? How do we get in touch with you? How do we Stay in touch with what you're up to.
2: Professionally, my law firm has an awesome website, indianaestateelderlaw.com. More personally, you can find me on Twitter. That's how we met. Jenny Roselle R-O-Z is in zebra, E-L-L-E and LinkedIn, but LinkedIn's a little more formal than I am naturally. So I tend to hang out in the Twitter land. Well, I guess it's not even Twitter, it's X or whatever we're calling it nowadays.
1: <laughs> it's probably going to change five more times in the next 10 for years. For
2: sure. Yeah. <laughs> but it'll be forever Twitter.
1: This is great to catch up. Thanks for being on and we'll have you back on again, probably with some other ideas. If you've got any tips and tricks for us, I think we've all just kind of gotten out of the year end of 2023. And we're sort of looking down the road to 2024 and 2025. We'll have you back on.
2: Awesome. Sounds great. Thank you for having me.
1: Thanks, Jenny.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Wealth Actually, hosted by Fraser Rice, author of the book Wealth Actually and a leading private wealth manager. Head on over to wealthactually.com where you can subscribe to this podcast, get your own copy of the Wealth Actually book and connect with Fraser directly. We'll see you next time on Wealth Actually. Fraser Rice is an employee of Next Capital Management LLC. This podcast is not investment, legal, or tax advice, nor does it reflect the opinions of Next Capital Management. Any opinions represented in the show are Fraser's individually and not an endorsement of the guests.